So 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 11. <clears throat> Remember the context of this letter. Peter the Apostle is writing unto the Jewish people who have been scattered um, abroad. There are two scatterings. Uh, there was the scattering of the Jews in the Old Testament. And there was the scattering of Christian Jews in the New Testament. And so you have the scattering of the Jews in the Old Testament through Babylon and uh, through the kingdoms of the Old Testament coming in and by the degree of God and the judgment of God um, overtaking Israel and Jerusalem and the Jews were scattered into these empires. Uh, they were scattered to the four corners of the earth. In fact, you could find and continue to be able to find Jews um, in Europe, Asia, Africa, and of course now in North America. Um, for the first time in history, there are more Jews in Israel than in any other part of the world. It used to be that New York City had more Jews than anywhere else, but now Israel does. Um, and there continues to be a great movement of Jews in what is called Aliyah, or the return, and, and folks are are going back to Jerusalem and Israel in droves. This is exactly what the Lord said in prophetic uh, prophetic things. He said He was going to draw them from the north and the south and the east and the west. And so we, He has. Um, we see these things. There's some miraculous things that God has done. Um, if you ever get the chance, uh, read about the Ethiopian Jews and how they literally were able to escape uh, by uh, helicopters going in and bringing them out. It's remarkable um, how they were able to get to Israel. Um, but Paul, uh, Peter here is writing unto these Jews across the world. Remember, when Christianity left Jerusalem because of the martyrdom of Stephen and the persecution of the Christians there in Jerusalem, that first church in Jerusalem uh, started to go out throughout the world. They started off in Jerusalem, then... They went to Judea and Samaria, and then they went to the uttermost parts of the world. And uh, in these uttermost parts of the world, they began to evangelize. Uh, they began to proclaim that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. And who would they proclaim it to? They would proclaim it to the Jews in those cities who had already set up synagogues in which where they could go on Saturday and evangelize. Um, there are many folks who uh, today say that uh, we shouldn't be meeting on Sunday. I saw a sign at uh, one of the Seventh-day Baptist churches uh, worship with us on Saturday and use Sunday for football. And I wanted to just crash that thing down to the ground, drive me crazy. Um, but uh, the truth is, is that Christians always worked on Saturday and they worked by going to the synagogue. And evangelizing. And then they'd meet together as Christians on Sunday. You can see this right in the New Testament. You can see it in the book of John. You can see it in the book of Acts. They met together on the Lord's Day. You can also see it in the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, where they gathered their offerings on the first day of the week. Um, and so, here we have... So the, the Jews would evangelize on Saturday. The Jewish Christians... And then they would worship the Lord on Sunday. By the way, often Sunday night. Often Sunday night is when they would meet. They would assemble. Why would they assemble on Sunday night 
especially in these Jewish areas. But why not Sunday morning? What do you think? Well, what, what is Sunday on a normal in a normal Jewish society? Sunday's work day, right? Sunday's a work day. Saturday's a rest day. Um, and so often you find in the old in the New Testament that they were meeting on Sunday night. And so I appreciate the folks that come out Sunday night. And praise the Lord that you're here. But he's writing to these people, and as they've gone across the world, they met with all kinds of nice folks who just loved that they were there, right? They might have found some folks like that, but what did they also find? Did they find it? Did they find it easy to go into the swarms of Gentiles? No. You can read how Paul went from place to place, and what did he find every place he went? Beatings, scourgings, stonings, jailings, all kinds of different things, right? And so did the other Christians. And so did these Jewish Christians? Uh, did they find? Life was easy once they left Jerusalem? Of course not. They found all kinds of hardship. Some were uh, made to be servants. Um, Others found themselves in poverty. Um, Still others found themselves being persecuted by their governmental system. Not wanting, wanting them to proclaim Christ. And having to deal with the consequences of those things. And so in chapter 11, we see how important it is that we be a people who are led by the Spirit and not by our flesh, led by the Spirit to obey God and not doing what our flesh wants in trying to keep away uh, from all sorts of, of, of uh, hardship. You know, our flesh has been said is... A good servant, but a bad master. What's meant by that is that we need our flesh, and we need our we need our flesh in order to do the things that God would have us to do. We live in our flesh. We fellowship in our flesh. There's brotherhood by the flesh. We see with our flesh. There's all kinds of things that we do, but if our flesh has mastery over us, we will do what our flesh wants. And if, if your flesh is like mine, what, our, what, what my flesh wants is ease, right? And to not, to not have any trouble. And God wants us to be at peace. But He doesn't want us to be at peace at all costs. He doesn't want us to live as the world. In order that we might have rest, not for our souls, Jesus gives us rest for our souls, but rest for our flesh. God gives us opportunity to rest for our flesh as well. May God help us as we look at this passage. So if you start there in verse 11, he's talking in verse 10, he says, you're now the people of God. And so in verse 11, he says, Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims. And I know we had looked at this before, but that word beseech, just a reminder, if you didn't get a chance to write it down, in this particular instance, doesn't mean to beg. 
We often think of the word beseech as to, to fall on our knees and plead, please, please, please do this. But the word beseech is the same root word that we find for the work of the Holy Spirit as comforter, the one who comes beside. And so Paul, when he says, dearly beloved, I beseech you, he says, dearly beloved, I come beside you. I am with you. Um, or Peter says this, I am with you. I, have, I know what it is that you're up against. I know what it is to live where you do amongst the people in which you do. He says, I know what it's like to live in the swarm of Gentiles. And I'm alongside you. I beseech you. Dearly beloved, I come beside as strangers and pilgrims, as those who are in a foreign land for just a little while, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And he doesn't get into what these fleshly lusts are, but it doesn't take much for us to know what they are in our own lives. Whether it be slothfulness or drunkenness or or any number of different things that that we might... Uh, lift up is the most important goal in which to live. In our society today, there's a whole lot of definition of what the American dream is. Much of it has to do with the consumption of the flesh. Whether it's the big house, or whether it's the, the exorbitant food, or whether it's to be able to be drunk often or whether it's to have lots of money and yet none of those things really go along with the scripture nothing wrong with having money there's nothing wrong with being able to eat a nice meal but it can't be the goal does that make sense it can't be the end when we say american dream what we're saying is this is the end This is what I'm living my life for. What are we living our life for? Is it so that we might say that we have nice things? Or it's so often the case that we we have a place to rest and lay our head. What did Jesus say? Jesus said, I have no place to rest my head. Right? Nothing wrong with having a place to lay your head. Nothing wrong with having a nice bed. Nothing wrong with going out and saying, you know, I'd like a Tempur-Pedic bed so that I can lay my head down and, and sink into that, that, uh, that memory foam mattress, right? Nothing wrong with that, but it can't be the end. It can't be the goal. And the goal can't be that we have the latest and greatest of all technology. Now, I like technology, but it can't be the goal. It can't be the goal, Right? What is the end? What is the purpose in which we live? What do you think? What's the purpose that God has given us to live? To spread His Word. To spread His Word. Alright, yes. Absolutely, to spread His Word. What else? To glorify Him. To glorify Him. The chief end of man, to enjoy God and to glorify Him forever. Certainly, to glorify and to bring Him glory. 
Any other thoughts? What is the end? What is our purpose? To lift up Christ. To shine as lights in a dark world. There's a practice that I do at the beginning of every year, really at the end of every year, to prepare for the beginning of every year. And I I look at it every year as a reminder, what is my purpose? And many of you know, my life verse, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of my faith, and it helps helps me to remember that my chief end is to go after Jesus Christ. Now what gets in the way of that? Fleshly lusts, right? It gets in the way. <laughs> These are the weights that so easily beset us. The sins and the weights in, uh, in Hebrews 12.1. The, the, these weights and these sins, they, they keep us from going forward in our chief end. How many of us have found ourselves weighed down by our fleshly lusts? I will stand at the front of the line. But I don't want to be weighed down. I don't want to live according to my fleshly lusts. He says, abstain from fleshly lusts. That means that if our, if our fleshly lusts leads us to say, this is what I want to do, we do that which is not that, right? Not necessarily the opposite, but not that. That means we have to be able to recognize when our flesh lusts, and by recognition, we do what's in opposition to what the flesh wants, right? And so, if my flesh wants to sleep till 9.30... And I tell you what, I've been been struggling in the past week. I found I is for a long time it's been fairly easy for me to wake up before six o'clock. Not that I love waking up at six o'clock, but I can do it. In other words, I, I wake up and, and I can get out of bed. Since the baby's been born, I've woken up and I didn't even know, but it, I, you wake up and it was seven o'clock. I'm like, oh my goodness. Time has gone by. And uh for me, it's important for me to get up a little early because guess who's getting up a little later? <laughs> All the kiddos, right? And once the kiddos are up, they uh, they they want breakfast. <laughs> and uh, and so if I'm up at seven, especially now with my wife taking care of the baby, who's making breakfast, right? And so is it easy for me to, especially at this point, if I'm not careful? Is it easy for me to skim through that which I, which is my purpose in life? To glorify God, to look unto Jesus. Would it be easy for me to, 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 to say, you know what, I just, I don't have the time. Sure, right? And my fleshly lust would say, breakfast sounds good, right? I can whip up a, a scrambled eggs with cheese and toast. And uh, we can eat. Next thing you know, it's time for me to come over to the office and begin the work of the day and all that goes into that. And and uh, my time with the Lord, just not as fresh, right? 
By the way, when that does happen, and will that happen? Will that happen to, to, to people? Does that, kind of thing, does that kind of thing only happen to me? Only me, like Chris. <laughs> only me. One of the things, and here's where the flesh really gets in the way. Say, those things happen. You know, sometimes God says, your body's tired, sleep. <laughs> and you do wake up at 7.30. You do wake up later than you normally would. But on the other end of the day, your flesh says, I wonder what the Red Sox score is. Let me turn it on. I'll pray. Don't worry, God. I'm going to pray. I promise. God, I'm going to spend some time in your word. I promise. What's, how, what's the Red Sox score? Oh, this is a good game. Next thing you know, it's 1030. <laughs> and so, God, I guess I'll pray now for about three and a half seconds before you fall asleep. Right? Now, what is your flesh saying? Watch the Red Sox. How might I abstain from that? Don't turn the Red Sox on. Right? That's what it means to abstain from fleshly lusts, which war against the soul. That makes sense? Why do I give that example? Don't say it, Gabe. Because it's happened to me, right? You say, my purpose is to look to Jesus. And I know because my purpose is to look unto Jesus, it's important for me to spend time in the Word and in prayer. And the flesh can get in the way, right? And this, is, this was so important for these people, and it is just as important for us Because they lived amongst a swarm of unbelieving Gentiles. Here you were believing Jews. So you had two strikes against you. You were a Jew. And Jews classically are either getting destroyed because they're impoverished. Because they've been stamped down. Or they're getting destroyed because they're rich. And have power. And so you're a Jew. And so uh, as a Jew, they, they were probably unliked in their society. Um, believe me, bigots have lived for a long time. But number two, not only were they Jewish, but they were Christian Jews. <laughs> and so they had two strikes against them because here they were preaching that Jesus was the Messiah, that we're all sinners and we need to be saved. Very few things are more offensive than going to a person and saying, you're a sinner and you're going to hell if you don't believe in Jesus. Now, that's an offense. People make up all kinds of other gods to get away from that fact. And you see that throughout the Scripture and you've seen it throughout the world. But they lived in this place. And so let me ask you, how important is it, especially since we don't know what is going to happen on any particular day, to be very near Christ if we're going to live for Him once we leave these church, this church grounds, this church building... Or once we leave our home. How important is it that we have a very close relationship with God after we leave this place? We need to have a very close relationship with the Lord 
that we might live the way He wants to, wants us to live in this world. I took my, it was my wife's birthday yesterday, and she wanted to go to Jersey Mike's. Jersey Mike's great sandwich place over in Appenog in Warwick. First time I went to Jersey Mike's was down south, and they make a good steak and cheese. She wanted to go to Jersey Mike's. We went there, and we got served by what was most assuredly a man, but looked in every way like a woman. No doubt about it. And I'm grieved over that poor person, that poor man, who's so confused about his life and doesn't know what to do. And I could huff and puff and get mad and say how disgusting and ridiculous. But that man needs Christ. We don't know what we're going to face in this world, do we? Any one of you know what's going to happen in your life tomorrow? You may have an idea, but I tell you what. There's going to come some things that you are going to, you're going to want to know that God is with you when you're in the midst of that situation. How can we have that? By living according to our purpose and not letting our fleshly lusts get in the way. How many times I was completely unprepared for what happened because I let my fleshly lusts get in the way which war against my soul and did not have the close intimacy with the Lord that I should. So he says in verse 12, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, that whereas they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so you have a man who's dressed as a woman. All the makeup. He even had physical attributes that... that of a woman and you hand that person a track what's going to go what's going to go into that person's mind now, I've handed out many tracks in my life right and most of the time folks take it I don't know if they read it or not but they're not on time but what is the automatic reaction to a Christian What's the automatic thought of a Christian when it comes to a person who has, who's a man who's made himself a woman? Right? You're judging me by giving me a track. No. No. I love you by giving you a track. Right? God knows what's best for each and every one of us. And He has made each and every one of us. He made that man. He made that man a man. But how are we going to react in those situations? Well, the Lord knows how to get us to the right place, doesn't He? You guys with me on that? The Lord knows how to get us to the right place. So having your conversation honest among the Gentiles, having your manner of life That's what that word conversation means. We need to be careful about using the word conversation as uh, uh, 
talking to someone in a particular instance. The word conversation means manner of life. Who are you really? Does one conversation, it may leave an impression, but is that who you are really? Are you able to, to fully know a person by one conversation? You cannot, right? You cannot. You may have an impression, but could that impression be wrong? Sure. How are you going to know a person? It is going to be over time, right? You're going to come to know a person over time. And that's what the word conversation ultimately means, your manner of life. You know, you get a new job and you start working. And first day, folks are going to have an impression of who you are, right? But they won't really know who you are until you've worked there over time. Because they get to see your manner of life. They get to see how you react and, and, and interact with customers. Uh, they get to see how you work with other people that you work with. Right? On the first day, if you are judging a person based upon the first day, often it's like a first date. <laughs> You know, you're always on your best behavior. But manner of life or our conversation has to do with time. Right? Has to do with time. Your manner of life. Who are you really? And so he says, having your conversation honest among the Gentiles. That word honest doesn't really mean in this instance to tell the truth. It means that your manner of life surpasses others. (laughs) Not for pride's sake. Not so that you can say that you're the best employee. But ultimately it means to be beautiful. And in this case, for Christ. Alright? That makes sense? And so in our workplaces, in our church, amongst the Gentiles, um, with the parents of the baseball game, uh, you want your manner of life to shine for Christ's sake amongst the Gentiles. Interestingly enough, that word Gentile means swarm. And I tell you what, the Jews in this instance were swarmed by Gentiles, right? You'd have a few Jews and you'd have a lot of Gentiles. There was no place you could go where you weren't going to meet with Gentiles. That's what that idea is when when the Lord speaks and He puts people in those two categories of Jews and Gentiles. How many Jews are there? You know, there's only there's there's less than 15 million Jews in the world. And so, if you're a Jew, other than living in Israel itself, and these people are not living in Israel. You're going to be swarmed by Gentiles, right? You go to the market, who's going to be there? Gentiles. You go to the doctor's office, who's going to be there? Gentiles. You go to work, who's going to be there? Well, we live in a similar similar type of situation, don't we? How many of you would say that you are living in a swarm of unbelievers? Sure, right? There'll be very few workplaces in New England where they where the majority of people are honest, real believers in Christ, right? Isn't that true? There's some, but very few. 
And so they were that you having your conversation honest amongst the swarm that whereas they speak against you as evil doers, they may by your good works, which they shall behold, glorify God in the day of visitation. And so there's a lot of people who do good things. But as Christians, we do good things for what? For the glory of God, right? What did Jesus say? On the in the the mountain to his disciples on that first sermon in Matthew chapter five. Let your light so shine among men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father, which is in heaven. So he comes to uh, that they may glorify God in the day of visitation. Again, I talked about that a little bit. I ultimately believe that the day of visitation is the day that God comes to show that person that ultimately you're right about the gospel so that they might be saved. Now, every visit that God has doesn't end with conversion. I believe ultimately that God is fully capable of visiting with every person in this world, but not every person in this world is going to get saved, right? Verse 13, submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether it be to the king as supreme or to governors as unto them that are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of them that do well. And so we have one of the key reasons for authority in government. What is the key reason, one of the key reasons why God institutes Kings and governors, according to this verse. To, what does he do to evildoers? Punish evildoers, right? And what does he do for the, what is government to do for those that do well? Praise them, right? Punish evildoers, praise those that do well. On what side should the Christian be? The ones who do well, right? The ones who do well. Now, who was the king or emperor at this time in which Peter was writing it? Very likely, and the timing may be a little off, but God knew when Peter wrote this that it wasn't far off. If it wasn't Nero, Nero was either the emperor or the one who was going to be emperor very soon. Alright? And God wrote this. And likely, Peter wrote this to one church. That church took that letter, copied it, and gave it to another church. And so at some point, even if it wasn't the original letter, some church was getting it for the first time with Nero as emperor. And what do we know about Nero's relationship with Christians? He loved them, didn't he? So much so that he loved to see them eaten by animals in the Colosseum. Right? And so, when God says this, He knew who was the king. He knew who was the emperor. He knew who the governors were. He knew that Pontius Pilate was the governor of Jerusalem when Jesus was taken and crucified. Right? And so... Is God saying that as Christians, if you do well, 
every government is going to praise you. He cannot be saying that because that would be outside of the realm of the very history up to this point for Christians. But he is saying this, that we are to be willing and absolutely submit ourselves to every ordinance of man. What man says we are supposed to do, we ought to do. But notice what it says, for the Lord's sake. Why do we do it? For the Lord's sake. In other words, what we do, what we do should be something that glorifies the name of God. We cannot misrepresent God by trying to keep the ordinances of man. One of the things that saddens me to no end is what is going on with that baker in Oregon who had his case go before the Supreme Court because of the wussiness of the Supreme Court and their ruling, now he's going to get sued again. And the thought is, is as long as everybody's nice to him about this, instead they can't be mean to him because he's a Christian, but as long as they're nice to him and say, hey, we're going to sue you, but we're going to be real nice. We're not going to say anything bad. We're just going to, we're just going to sue you. That, that's going to be okay. And that's not a good thing. I do not think that that man is breaking this idea here, right? Because he doesn't want to misrepresent the name of God. God is the creator of all people. And if you were created a woman, you were created a woman by God. And if you were created a man, you were created a man by God. And that is the very best person you can be. Right? When we get to a place in society where a person can literally choose what sex they are, we've gotten to a place in society where God cannot be God. Because He is the Creator God. And I do believe, because of our intense belief that who we are today is a culmination of millions of years of evolution, then of course, why can we not choose what sex we are, even if it's not even a boy or a girl, a man or a woman? It could be some other thing. And here's the reason why. Because the idea is, even if there is a God, He's left us alone. But here's the truth. God made you and formed you in your mother's womb. In other words, it is not a, what you became is not a process of evolution, but God was literally there in your mother's womb. Making you who you are. That is what the scripture says. And when I say literally, that's what I mean. I believe that the very seeds in the ground sprout up because God Himself causes them to sprout up. God is very involved in this world. 
And so when it comes to our relationship with government, we cannot defame the name of God by keeping their laws if their laws lead us to saying and acting in a way that is contrary to the name of God. That makes things very difficult, doesn't it? Brian, you know. There are Zays in your school. Whatever that means. Not they, not he, not she. Z. And there's, from what I understand, there's dozens of pronouns to try to describe people. What do you do? Number one, have a very close relationship with God. Amen. If you are going to, if we are going to face a Gentile world, may God help us to be very close to Him. Amen. We are going to face corruption in our businesses, in our workplaces, and we need to know how to act. Verse fifteen: For so is the will of God that with well doing you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men. As free and not using your liberty for a cloak of maliciousness. And so, if that man is trying to be malicious in Oregon, then he is doing wrong. We cannot be malicious to people who are ignorant and foolish. Right? What does the word malicious mean? To seek to harm. Right? We should not be those who seek to harm other people. Not one other person should we seek to harm. And we should not say, I'm free. I've got liberty. Therefore, I ought to be able to do harm to this other person. That is contrary to the Word of God. If we are using our liberty for harm, that's wrong. But if we are using our liberty for good, that's right. If we're using our liberty for the glory of God, that is right. And we have to live in that instance as free and not using our liberty as a cloak of maliciousness, but as the servants of God. Verse 17, honor all men. That word honor means esteem. The word men means people. What does the word all mean? Doesn't mean the ones we like. <laughs> doesn't, mean the one, doesn't mean the ones that we respect. The word all. If you're making a one of those circle diagrams, when if you're going to get all, everybody in there, you've got to make one big circle, right? All means all. <laughs> and so how are we to treat other people? We are to honor them, esteem them. How do we do that? We've got to go back to Genesis chapter 1 if we're going to esteem people who are wicked. What does Genesis chapter 1 tell us? When it comes to the creation of man, what does it tell us? Come on. God made man, yes, but how did He make man? In His image. Right? Every man is worthy of esteem because every man is made in the image of God. 
This does not mean that we we esteem them for what they do. We esteem man for who they are. They are those who are made in the image of God. Right? And that would include the most abominable person in the world. The most devilish person in the world. If that person is encountered by a Christian, how ought that Christian treat that person? See, there's a man that's in the, made in the image of God. And therefore, that person deserves not just honor, but that person deserves the gospel. Right? Does that make sense? What person does not deserve the gospel? There's not one person who doesn't deserve the gospel. Why? Because every person is made in the image of God. Why? Because Jesus Christ died for all men. Why? Because God is not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Right? But if Christians are unwilling to honor the ones they don't like, what will they not do? We will not give the gospel to those that we will not esteem. How can we esteem people that are doing us wickedly wrong? It can only be by looking unto Jesus. That is the only way. This person in my workplace, there is nothing that I can say good about their character, about how they act and how they treat me. Nothing good. And that may be true. You ever met someone like that? You'd be hard pressed to find something good. You'd have to almost lie. Except this. The person is made in the image of God. Jesus died for him or her. And he doesn't want anybody to perish. Therefore, that person deserves the gospel. You know, of all things, especially for we in America, the people that treat us the worst ought to be the easiest to give the gospel to. <laughs> You know why? Number one, because we live in America, we can give the gospel freely. But number two, those who hate us the most or who treat us the worst, they ought to be the easiest to give the gospel to because it's our way, our one way of honoring them. No other way could we, right? If that person is stealing, they shouldn't get a plaque for employee of the month. <laughs> right? If that person is vile, they shouldn't get a good character award. <laughs> right? But they can get the gospel. Honor all men. Love the brotherhood. How important it is for churches, our church, so that we love each other. Right? It's so important that we love each other. I'm so thankful for the folks of our church. When people are in distress, come alongside, not only in prayer, but in good works. When people are in trouble, very quick to be helpful. This is so needful. Because in our world, it's a dog-eat-dog, dog-eat-dog world, right? 
You're in my way. I will eat you to get you out of my way. That's what that expression means. Dog eat dog. But as brethren, we love each other, right? Love the brethren. It's so necessary. It'd be very hard to live in this world without knowing that I can go and find love amongst my brothers and sisters in Christ. Fear God. Honor the King. God is supreme. And God is the one who has our life in His hands. God is the one who who made us and gives us breath. And if we're able to take another breath, it's because God allowed us to do so. Not the King. And so the word fear God has a twofold meaning. Number one, God, you are really, really, really awesome. You are the best. You are high and lifted up. And if you're there, I deserve to be on my knees. But also, God, you are God. And I want to do it your way because you are God. Servants, be subject unto your masters with all fear. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward. Again, we're getting into the very, the, the very uh, application of this idea of honor all men. Be subject unto your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the froward, the unfair, the surly, the mean. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endure grief, suffering wrongfully. Now, I want you to think about this, verse 19. We're going to come back to that word thankworthy. But I want us to ask the question, who's giving the thanks and who is being thanked? It really blows my mind. For this is thankworthy if a man for conscience toward God endured grief, suffering wrongfully. And so for whom does the person suffer? For God, right? For what glory is it when you be buffeted for your faults? Ye shall take it patiently. If you are doing wrong and you get whipped, you deserve it. Take it patiently. But if when you do well and suffer for it, ye take it patiently, this is acceptable to God. As I ask you, number one, who is being thanked? I would propose to you, The person who is suffering for the glory of God. Not for wrongdoing, but for right doing. Then here's the mind-blowing thing. Who's doing the thanks? Is it the master who's doing the whipping? Is he thanking? Uh Uh-uh. If the person who's being thanked is the one who's taking the whipping... For the glory of God, then who's doing the thanks? That blows my mind. Of all people who needs not give thanks, who is it? God does not need to give thanks. God is God, and yet what is He doing here? If you find yourself suffering for Christ, you have a God who's thankful. Thank you for going through that for me. What a God we have. Don't we have an amazing God? Amen. Amen. For here, even here unto were you called, because Christ also suffered for us, 
leaving us an example that you should follow his steps. Who did no sin, neither was guile found in his mouth. Who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judgeth righteously. God, you are in control. Jesus is our great example. Who for his, who his own self bear our sins in his own body on the tree, that we being dead to sins should live unto righteousness by whose stripes ye are healed. For you are sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. Underline that in your Bibles. Highlight it. Jesus is the shepherd and bishop of our souls. God cares about what goes on in our soul. And when we're going through hardship, we can be reminded that He went through hardship too. And He went through hardship so He could be the bishop and shepherd of our soul. And so it goes back to verse 11. Dearly beloved, I beseech you as strangers and pilgrims abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. And then verse 25, For you were as sheep going astray, but are now returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What wars against our soul? Fleshly lust. Who is the bishop and shepherd of our soul? Jesus Christ. Run to Him every day. Run to Him every day. That we might not be overtaken by the world. Amen? Dearly beloved, I beseech you, strangers and pilgrim, pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul. Verse 25 again. For you are a sheep going astray, but now are returned unto the shepherd and bishop of your souls. What a great God. Let's pray together. Lord, please. You have given us a new.